0: Well, Lord Jesus, light of the world, the light that shines in the darkness, which the darkness has not overcome, may you illuminate our hearts and lives as we approach your word this morning. Welcome to John chapter 17. And the prayer of Jesus and the invitation to listen. To listen in as Jesus unveils through his prayer some of the most important truths for our lives that we could possibly imagine. If you have your Bible, I would invite you to turn there. John chapter 17, we're tackling all of three verses and we're not even going to be able to do them justice. John seventeen one through three. If you're using a black pew Bible, page eight seventy seven, is where you will find it. I will also put it on the screen. John chapter seventeen verses one through three. We find these words: After Jesus said this, he looked towards heaven and prayed, "Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that your Son may glorify you." For you granted him authority over all people, that he might give eternal life to all those you've given him. Now this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. This is the word of the Lord. So we have this rare chance to listen in as Jesus prays. And even just in these first three verses, um, we see a crescendo. You know, a crescendo where the music in a symphony starts out quiet and gets a little bit louder and gets a little bit louder and it swells to its climax. And what we have, even in just these three verses, is the same kind of feel, the same kind of movement. He's barely started praying. And it's amazing. He begins, Father, the hour has come. Have you ever had to wait for something? Um, my daughter Tessa's play was this weekend at the high school. And they have been waiting for this weekend for months, rehearsing the actors, the, the musicians, the stage crew and managers, the director. They've been spending months and months and months. And when opening night finally arrived, it was like, ah, oh, the hour has come. Right? Or maybe as a student especially at this time of year, you are waiting for and longing for that day, that great and glorious day when all papers are handed in, all exams have been written, and the summer arrives, and you will declare, ha ha, the hour has come. Or maybe you've been waiting for a child to be born. The hour has got to come. Or maybe you've just endured four back-to-back nor'easters. And here we are in the 90 something day of January. And we wait while a winter just won't go away. And today then the sun comes out. And you think, maybe the hour has come. Well, as Jesus begins to pray, He begins to pray by saying, Father, the hour has come. But He's not talking about graduation or childbirth or the changing of the seasons. He's thinking a little bit bigger than that. On the one hand, this is the culmination of his entire life and ministry. Right? He's been on the earth for roughly thirty-three years. He's been an active, visible ministry for three years, and he realizes and is sharing with those disciples who are listening in that this hour has come. Remember, after he finishes this prayer, he's going to head over to the Garden of Gethsemane. He'll be betrayed by Judas, arrested by the Jews, denied by Peter, taken before the Romans, sentenced to be executed, and crucified. And then he'll rise again. This is the culmination of everything Jesus has been living towards and teaching towards. The hour has come but even more than just Jesus' own life. I think we need to you know, widen the camera angle a little bit to see it's more than just Jesus' own life because Jesus and His life is part of God's great story that has been going on since the very creation of the world. If you were here with us this fall and we were studying the big story of the Bible, this graphic may look familiar to you. In Genesis, we find out that it is God who created the heavens and the earth, and that's where the story begins, with God. And He creates humanity in His image. And it doesn't take us but till chapter 3 before we break it all. And we rebel against God. We choose our ways instead of His. And our relationship with God is broken. But God, not content to leave us broken, begins to call. And the rest of the Old Testament is the story of God calling to His people saying, return to Me! And it's also the story of God's people saying, yeah, not so much. And so God calls again and says, maybe I'll speak through Moses and I'll constitute a nation. And God's people say, yeah, we're not going to be very good at this. And he says, well, what about King David? Yes, I'm going to call King David. You're going to be a people after my own heart. And God's people are like, yeah, but we still are not very good at this. And he's like, well, maybe I'll send my prophets and I will call you back to me. And then God's people are like, so we're not very good at that. And this is the story of the Old Testament. God calling. And by the end of it, well, God's people are functionally flatlining. Rebelled against God. Broken relationship with Him. Until, that is. Until the hour has come. And God rescues His people. This is not just a plan that's been around for 30 years in Jesus' life. This is the climax moment of the entire redemptive purposes of God all happening right as Jesus begins to pray. The hour has come, Jesus says. It is worth pausing to appreciate the the significance of a statement like that as Jesus begins. To recognize the moment into which this prayer is being spoken, all of redemptive history is about to reach its climax. See what I mean? We 're aiming for this crescendo. The opening line of the prayer hints that here comes the climax moment. Here comes the best part. And so we continue in the prayer. What is the best part? What is this great rescue? that Jesus is praying about. And He says down here that He might give eternal life to all those you have given Him. There it is. This is the whole point of Jesus dying on the cross and rising again is the offer of eternal life. Now, even when we say that, we got to pause and say, now most of us when we think eternal life, I would argue we think in terms of duration, right? We think quantitatively. Eternal life is life without end, hence the eternal part of eternal life. But if you've studied John much, you might also recognize that there's an additional dimension that John has in view here because life without end might actually not be pleasant if it's life without hope, without end. That eternal life is more than just of unending quantity, There also has to be quality to this life. This is what Jesus means when He says the thief comes but to steal, kill, and destroy in John 10. But He says, I have come that they might have life and have it more abundantly. We're talking not just about quantity. We're talking quality. We're not just talking about unending duration. We're talking about volume. Life to the full is what Jesus is offering. Eternal life. Yeah, so, so what is eternal life exactly then? As we're building to this crescendo, it's not just that the hour has come. That's where it begins. So we know this is the climax of redemptive history. And then the climax of that redemptive history is in this offer of eternal life. So that's getting even bigger of a swell as the orchestra begins to really kick into gear. But then, Jesus goes on to explain even what eternal life is. Now this is eternal life, Jesus says. That they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you've sent. Oh, and the orchestra goes crazy. This this is this is it. Sometimes we just read it and it goes right past us. But we need to camp out here for a couple of minutes to make sure we don't miss. The actual offer that's on the table. This whole idea is that we can, we're being invited to listen as Jesus prays. And the climax, the swell, the crescendo, everything is pointing to this concept that you and I, we can know God. Now, this word know can be tricky. It's got a pretty huge range of meanings. Actually, the English language is filled with words like this. Words that we just throw around, and obviously we all know what it means, until you actually take a closer look and realize there are nuances to this word. There's entire arenas of meaning, a constellation of nuance that, that works together to help us understand this word. Let me give you an example of a word in English that functions in the similar kind of way. Think of the word, like, run. And you think, oh, we all know what that means, right? Sure, it is, like, it's faster than walking, right? It is forward propelling by your feet such that one foot is not on the ground at the same time as the other foot, so that you're kind of moving quickly-ish. To run. Yes, we all know what that means. Until we're talking about a car engine. And then we're like, well, it's working. Is the car running? Go, go make sure the car is running so it gets warmed up because there's another Nor'easter coming. right. Or or maybe the word run means to be in charge, like she runs her own business. Or, or maybe the word run is to aspire to an office, like he's running for Congress. Or maybe the word run means a certain drippiness from the mucous membranes of one's nose. Do you, do you see, there is an entire range of meaning here to this word that we all just think, like, well, of course we know what it means. But actually, if you look at all of these various meanings, actually not all that different from each other there's a center to it all whether it is literally running one foot in front of the other or whether it's more abstract more figuratively a motor is running it's operating you're running or operating a business or you're moving towards an objective like running for office or even the trajectory as it moves down your upper lip and then drips to the ground this whole idea of forward progress towards an objective at a rapid pace figuratively or literally, there is actually a center to it all represented by this word run. What Jesus says here is listen. We can know God. But this word know has a range of nuances that are worth exploring. You can see it almost like as a as a kind of Venn diagram. Think of it as um, a number of different facets of a jewel that we want to rotate and spin to make sure we appreciate all of it. Even considering it not just from the English language standpoint, but biblically, the way the word is used. The first sense that we find in the scriptures of how this word knowing is used is this idea of like awareness. So for example, we see in Romans chapter 1, Paul is writing and saying, since what may be known about God is plain to them. God has made it plain to them through what he's made. This is one of the places where this exact same word here in John is used. And this idea is, look, they're aware that God exists. God has made himself known through what he's made. You can have a general awareness of God just by looking around you. Okay. Yeah, you can know that God exists. That's one facet of what it means to know. Let's keep going. There's another arena of meaning over here, and we'll call this one information. And in the Scriptures, we see this in a place like Acts chapter 2, where Peter, giving his great speech after Pentecost, says, let all Israel know this for certain, that God has made this Jesus whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. And here we have Peter conveying information, and he wants to make sure that all Israel knows this information. It's the same word, it's just a different nuance of meaning. It's about information. There's a third nuance of meaning we could draw your attention to, and that is that of experience. And here, a good example of this might be John chapter 13, which is where actually the beginning of the farewell discourse we just studied this this is the foot washing text the new commandment love one another as i have loved you and jesus says in that text and in this way they will know you are my disciples as you love one another as they experience as they witness as they see firsthand this this love that you have for one another as they experience that they'll know you're my disciples is a knowledge that only comes through experiencing it firsthand and there's a fourth arena of meaning and we'll call this an actual encounter and this comes from a scary text in matthew chapter 7 where jesus says not everyone who says to me lord lord will enter the kingdom of heaven but only he who does the will of my father in heaven and it talks about you know the people who say but lord didn't we like pray in your name and cast out demons in your name and do all this awesome stuff in your name and jesus says i will tell them plainly i never knew you we 've never talked we 've never met. you may have known me at these other three nuances of knowing, but you've never encountered I 've never encountered you we haven 't met face to face now these are four different sort of ways of knowing, but I would propose there's a fifth one that's employed biblically as well, and it 's actually the place where all these other four kind of overlap in the middle and this is a place where all those other four apply over time. And it's a place that I would call relationship. A great example of that is in John 14, where, you know, Philip says, Oh, Jesus, just show us the Father, and that will be enough for us. And Jesus replies, Don't you know me, Philip? Don't you know me, Philip? Even after I've been among you for such a long time. The idea here is that this relationship is the culmination or the overlap between all these other four kinds of knowing, but in a sustained way over time. So It turns out I can take a really easy word and make it super complicated. That's my job, to obfuscate. No, you guys actually know all this. The way we use the word "no" in the English language, we actually intuitively just flip-flop back and forth between all these different meanings, and we all kind of know what we're talking about. I can prove it to you by giving you an example of the way. You know, I could say this. Um, Do you know Paul David Hewson? How many people know him? Oh. Maybe you'd recognize him. He goes by the stage name Bono. Oh, now you know him, right? Now you're like, oh, I'm, I've heard of him. I'm, uh, well, you could say I'm aware of him. I've heard of him. I know he exists. Do You know Bono? Yeah, yeah, I've heard of him. I know him. Or maybe you move to the information stage. And you say, oh, but what do you know about him? And you know, you know, he formed U2 in 1976? I was. <laughs> I was two. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but it was it wasn't until 1987 that they dropped Joshua Tree and went global, right? 88 Rattle and Hum, downhill since. But. The, the, the idea here is that he, you know of him. You can look that stuff up on Wikipedia to find out information about him. When you say, do you know Bono? Do you know you too? You can, yes, he's an activist, a philanthropist. He's got all kinds of amazing things going on. You can be filled with information. You can know him through information. But have you ever been to a concert? <laughs> I'm so jealous. If you've been in the same room with him, if you've heard the band play, if you've heard him sing... That can be a spiritual experience. The closest I've gotten is listening to their CDs, which also dates me. Rattle and Hum, track nine, Pride in the Name of Love. It's a live recording, so you can actually hear the crowd in the background. And it opens with these like, couple of dissonant, sort of wafty, airy, trademark u 2 e chords. And the crowd actually gets quiet. And then the edge drops into that anthematic opening to In the Name of Love. The crowd recognizes the song and you hear them in the background. They just, they roar and they come to life as they recognize the song and enter into the experience of it. It gives me chills when I'm listening to it, especially at volume 12. And if you've ever been to a YouTube concert, you can look at the rest of us and say, yeah, but you don't know him. Until you've experienced him, you don't know it. But then those of you who are thinking you're all high and mighty because you've experienced it, but have you actually met him? <laughs> have you shaken his hand? If you asked Bono, hey, do you know Paul Levitt? You'd be like, uh, sorry, dude, don't know him. It's kind of a check in the relationship. Does the other person know you the way you think you know them? There's a meeting. There's a face-to-face encounter. Have you had a conversation with him? Would he remember you? But lastly... Where all these other domains overlap, you'd find this middle, this relationship, which is all of them extended forward through time to spend time with him on a regular basis, to go through life alongside him. Picture Adam Clayton, the bass player for U2. The luckiest musician in the history of the world because he only has to play four notes. The entire U2 repertoire. He only has to play four notes. But he gets to play alongside Bono. He gets to travel with him. Tour with Him. Write music with Him. He gets to laugh and weep and do life together. That's that's the knowing of relationship. So, when we say that Jesus is praying and He's inviting us to listen in, He's saying there's a crescendo. And it begins by saying the hour has come. Here's the climax moment of redemptive history. Here it comes. We've been given eternal life through his death and resurrection. And that eternal life is that we can know God. The question is, what does knowing God look like? Are you an awareness person? I kind of believe that God exists. I mean, I see a beautiful day we live by the ocean, how can there not be a God? that's the beginning place but it ain't the end or you might say i'm an information person cuz i love to study the scriptures oh i'm going to learn everything there is to know about god i will i will win every sunday school sword drill i'm going to just rock the world with my knowledge about god his character his heart his purposes his redemptive plan and his mission for us in the world I'm going to learn about God. That's so good. It's also not complete. Maybe you're an experienced person who loves that place of worship. Where when the people of God are gathered together and you sense His presence among you. Or maybe it's a walk out in the midst of creation when you just feel the presence of the Spirit with you. Maybe it's even in service when you recognize the image of God in your fellow humans. And you're able to serve them and love them in His name. The experience of God. But have you talked to Him? Have you met with Him? And not just corporately as a church, but on a daily basis, do you speak with Him in prayer? Has He met you there? Has He spoken your name? And if you put them all together... Have you enjoyed that kind of a knowing through time, day in and day out, knowing God? The interesting thing is, the more you invest in these this this knowing, the more the circles of overla- kind of overlap more and more. It's like they get squished towards the center, and the relationship in the middle starts to grow. And over the years, as you spend time. Becoming more aware of His presence with you. Learning more about Him through studying Scripture. Experiencing Him in worship and service. And speaking with Him. Meeting with Him each day. Your relationship grows greater and stronger and takes up more room as all of these arenas of knowing overlap. You know, becoming a Christian, that's the initial decision, right? I'm going to turn from the way I was going, which is all about me and what I want, And instead, I'm going to accept what Jesus has done for me. And I'm going to go in God's direction and submit my life to His Lordship. Becoming a Christian is moving from death to life. It's being forgiven for our sin that separates us from God. But staying a Christian, continuing to be a Christian, that's not just going on with your life the way it was before. It's knowing God More and more each day. It's becoming more aware of His presence. It's learning more about Him through His Word. It's about experiencing Him in worship and service and meeting with Him day in and day out and watching as your relationship with Him grows and grows and grows. This is the offer that's on the table. The question is, are you taking advantage of it? Where is your comfortable place of knowing? I like information. And those of us who continue to go on with more and more schooling because we're suckers for punishment and we just want to know more. We want to know more. This is my comfortable place. It's also the place I go when I chicken out from meeting with the rest of God. I am so safe and comfortable knowing about God because I don't actually have to talk to him face to face. And I don't have to put myself in a place where I might experience his holiness. And if I'm not careful, I can go through each day not even being aware that he's with me. So when I say, what is your comfortable place? It's sort of like an unguarded strength is a double weakness. You can say, I like this information side of knowing. But the danger there is that you stay in the information side of knowing. And in so doing, you miss out on everything else that God has in store for you. Maybe, maybe you're the experienced person who says, just get me out in the woods and I get chills and I just like the chills. Get me to a U2 concert because that's where I experience God. That's a magnificent place to be. It is fuel for living to experience God like that. That's all you're doing. Maybe you're missing out on the chance to study him and to learn about his character and nature through his word, which is how he has revealed himself within language, with specificity about who he is, what he came to accomplish, and what his life with you could look like. I'm intrigued by this framework for thinking about knowing because when I see where I am on the chart. I sense that God's inviting me to grow. I sense that there's more to God than I'm experiencing. And I would wager there's more to God than you're experiencing too. Where is the Lord inviting you to grow in such a way that your relationship with Him continues to flourish and that space of overlap in the middle continues to expand and expand as you bring all the different aspects of knowing together. This is the great crescendo of John's prayer. And as he records what Jesus says, and Jesus has just barely gotten going, right? He's saying, Listen, this is the climax of redemptive history. The hour has come. I'm about to accomplish through my death and resurrection, that which has been foretold since the dawn of time, I'm going to save the world from its sins and offer new life in My name. The hour has come, Jesus says. Eternal life is what I'm offering, Jesus says. And that eternal life is that we can know God. Do you want to? Have you grown complacent in whatever quadrant of knowing that you feel safe in? I think as Jesus invites us to eavesdrop as he prays, sort of our first stop on this journey is to just pause and to invite the Holy Spirit to reveal to us what's our default posture here? And might God want to meet each of us in a new way as we meet with Him over the next eight weeks in John 17? In fact, that's how we're going to end this morning. I want to invite you to reflect on the very faded image that you can barely read on the screen. And even just taking a moment of silence for reflection. To recognize that the climax of God's plan is the death and resurrection of Jesus. The hour has come. That through that death and resurrection, he offers us eternal life. That's the offer on the table. And that offer is nothing else but the chance to know God in as deep and holistic and integrated a way as you can possibly imagine. Where might God want you? to grow, to know Him more. Let's take a few moments of silence before we continue in worship.